Welcome back to the Go Gamecocks podcast. I'm your host, sports editor Dwayne McLemore, filling in for Greg Hadley, who is gallivanting slash working, covering the South Carolina-Maryland basketball game. This is the podcast designed to be short and sweet, and you can complete it all in the time it takes you to commute to or from your destination, or if you're like me, while you mow the grass. I'm here with Ben Briner, our Swiss Army Knife reporter. Ben, say hello. How we doing, Dwayne? I'm doing all right. I've had better days, but you know what? We're here. Technology's working. Can't complain. Wanted to start off just talking about the busy weekend that it's been for South Carolina Athletics. Throw a few congratulations out there. Congratulations to Shelly Smith, South Carolina women's soccer team, SEC championship. Arguably one of the most successful programs on campus the last few years. Congratulations to Frank Martin. 2-0 start. Big win over Wyoming. Wyoming had a tough time scoring buckets against the Gamecocks. Congratulations to Dawn Staley. Big win on the road. Greg is there covering it. Big win on the road at Maryland. And let's talk about Will Muschamp. What a game yep, it was. Let's talk about that. <laughs> what a game it was Saturday. Interesting to say the least. Uh, the state of the season seems to change every week. And right now it's not super great. Defense played really well Saturday, but Gamecocks came out on the short end of things. Ben, what, what went wrong? Well, the offense played exceptionally bad. I think a lot of it started with the offensive line. Pass protection was not great. I think there were two or three rather costly holding penalties, and they couldn't move a pretty small Appalachian State defense. The Mountaineers run kind of a 3-4 type thing, which you'd think South Carolina with its SEC line could kind of overwhelm. And oh boy, did they just not do that. I think I did the math, and even if you factor out sacks, South Carolina didn't average more than two yards a carry. Their best run was a scramble from Ryan Holinsky on a called pass play, and Muschamp said after the game, if they can't run it, they're really in trouble. They could not run it, and they were really in trouble. And that's before you factor in, I want to say, six or seven drops that kind of a, a bunch of them really just ended drives. There were a bunch on third downs, Overall, I think I counted it up, yeah, six six drops, more than a few that either would have potentially converted those third downs and kept a drive going, or there was one that was tipped up in the air and then returned for a touchdown, which ended up providing the winning margin for uh, the visiting Mountaineers. Gamecocks currently four and six, still mathematically available to go to a bowl. But the schedule does not get any easier, to say the least. Players talked afterwards, still holding out hope, you know, to get to a bowl. It will take a miracle. I think you wrote that it would require something very close to divine intervention to beat Clemson. The odds are really long. What, what if they're if they're not playing for a bowl? What is USC playing for these last two games? Well, in the short term, fight and pride, if nothing else. If they were to beat Texas A&M, that would at least be sort of a, a positive mark. They get they'd get to five and seven. Would probably turn down the heat on Will Muschamp's seat some, not a whole ton, but would at least make that look a little better, make the optics better. That's really all you can play for at this juncture because yeah, they're they're not going bowling unless they pull off something they really haven't shown the ability to do all season. And then if they were to somehow manage to pull that off, we'd look back at the season and say, how did any of this happen? Yeah, so really at this point, pride and and making things look a little better heading into the offseason. Coach Muschamp, after the game, made a baseball reference, which I didn't catch the first time I listened to it, but he said South Carolina doesn't have a second pitch. Uh, what is their first pitch? And, and when it's not working, what does that mean? Well, in theory, their first pitch should be their running game. It should be—it's not necessarily the most diverse running game, but— 
there's two to three concepts that they run pretty well, primarily their pin and pull sweep, and they build a lot of their offense off of that. They build a lot of RPOs off of it. They build kind of, to a degree early this year, their identity off of it. Their biggest win happened in a game where they could run the football somewhat well. It isn't necessarily explosive. It doesn't generate big plays, but it keeps things moving and at least keeps the defense honest when it comes to the passing game. And when it's not working, it means Ryan Lindsay's thrown the ball 50 times, which he's done three times this year. If memory serves, I don't think any Gamecocks quarterback has done that ever, and he has managed to do it three times in nine games. Now, that necessarily might not be the worst thing if you had all the pieces in place, but South Carolina's receiver core was just basically destroyed last night. Brian Edwards didn't play for a big chunk of the first half, Shai Smith was out. Josh Van was out. Chavis Dawkins missed a lot of the game with a hamstring. You had a lot of Xavier Leggett or Trey Smith. I'm not sure if he played a couple of snaps and then was out or was out altogether. For big chunks of the game, you had a walk-on named Trey Adkins playing actual snaps. He caught a couple passes for 33 yards, and he is a player that I don't know if you had pulled any of the South Carolina beat writers. He might not have been the first walk-on wide receiver that you would have expected to play, which is to say that they were just in real bad shape. That contributes to some of the drops. Oh, and they didn't have Nick Muse either. So they just were short playmakers, and their offensive line was playing pretty badly in terms of pass protection. And you throw all that together, and you're putting everything on the shoulders of a true freshman quarterback, an injured wide receiver, one running back, and one tight end. And unless those dudes are really awesome, that is not a good recipe for success. I will say from the perspective of being on the field, which I was taking photos, I was shocked, to say the least, when I saw Trey Adkins out there, mainly because I was on the opposite side of the field and I just didn't recognize him. I don't remember or Trey Smith playing much at all, just from my recollection. I know it's a big deal for Adkins to play. I know his family's super excited. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to him this week. You asked Coach Muschamp after the game if freshman receivers Kevion Mullins and Tyquan Johnson were healthy, and he pretty quickly said yes. Why did you ask that question? Well, I primarily asked it because I figured I might write something about the wide receivers either in the days after the game or this week. And I didn't want to say that those two weren't playing only to then turn around and discover that they were actually injured. Because sometimes in the flow of a season, especially with this staff, injuries sometimes fall by the wayside. Players who are hurt don't get mentioned. And I also wanted to ask it because those were two guys that they had spoken particularly highly of. And those were a couple guys with decent uh, recruiting hype. Johnson was a guy that they signed one year. He failed to qualify. They held out and signed him a second time, using two signing day spots to do so. Mullins was a four-star receiver, and I can't remember exactly where he ranked. I think he was at least close to the top 300, or in the top 300. And he should be a talented kid. Shoot, he was much higher rated than Xavier Leggett, who is playing a lot right now. And neither of those dudes is ready. And that's at a wide receiver position where the staff has historically not shown much hesitancy to play true freshmen. They played Brian Edwards. They played Shai Smith. They played Ortray a lot because they had to. And at this point, I asked in part because it seems like it says something if they're in a spot where they have to play some people and those two guys are staying on the bench. You wrote this in your column after the game. In the realm of what's considered for a coaching change... What's the difference between 5-7 and seven and 4-8? and eight? And what does 2020 look like if Coach Muschamp is back as the coach at South Carolina? Well, narratively, it's a bit different, mainly because of what this team 
was supposed to be what it was kind of looking at coming into this year. Realistically, unless you assume they were going to win every toss-up game and pull off an upset, there was kind of a seven-win cap on this season, unless one of the top five teams on their schedule just completely bombed out, which at this point, four of them are very good, and Texas A&M is getting destroyed by its own particularly ridiculous schedule. So... Seven and five was probably a ceiling, and there were almost no gimmies on the schedule. Probably in the preseason, we and everyone else sort of understated the fact that five and seven or four and eight was pretty possible. Now, South Carolina has also had a litany of problems. They haven't had a healthy backfield since the Florida game. Their wide receiver core is a mess right now. Jake Bentley got hurt after a particularly bad opener and gave way to a true freshman quarterback. They've had to go to a third-string, second-true freshman right tackle, which is not particularly good. They had to reshuffle their whole offensive line after the opener. On defense, um, they've got five defensive backs right now, and JT Ebay has at times had his share of problems that, that reared its head in the Tennessee game. So if you take all those extraneous factors and the fact that Will Muschamp has an extremely high buyout, you kind of have to factor in and say... If seven wins was the ceiling, or the realistic ceiling, five wins after all those things is kind of a natural result. It's not what a staff wants, but it's the kind of thing that can happen. Now, turn around, four four and eight doesn't seem that much different, but in some ways I think it feels that much different. It's not one game away from a bowl, it's four and eight. It's eight losses in year four with a new staff. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Will Muschamp would get fired or not fired or that five and seven would save him because we don't really know the ins and outs of that decision-making process. But we do know that it's just hard to survive a thing like that. Four and eight in year four tends to get coaches fired and can get coaches fired. Doesn't guarantee anything because that buyout is still high and Muschamp would have to agree to negotiate it down. But at the moment... Five and seven is explainable in a way that four and eight I don't really think is. But if Muschamp's back next year, which we assume as of this recording that he will be back, if he's back, how much of how much does 2020 become a prove-it year? It definitely becomes a prove-it year, and then the question after it becomes a prove-it year is, what does he have to prove? Does he have to prove that there's a high ceiling for this program, or does he have to prove that there's a floor? And by that I mean, does he have to be solid, or does he have to be good? And I just said, does the team have to be solid or does the team have to be good? Because the schedule doesn't get that much easier. Basically, all you do is you trade out Alabama for a trip to LSU. So functionally, that seven-win ceiling, unless Texas A&M doesn't take some kind of steps back, that seven-win ceiling is still very much in play. So if you were to get this team to six and six, maybe that's enough. He might have to get to seven. But again, it's going to be kind of a hard road to hoe no matter what you're gonna have shy smith back you're gonna have Halinski. you're gonna have four offensive linemen you're gonna have to rebuild your backfield around kevin harris marshawn lloyd uh whatever other freshmen they get and deshaun fenwick and you're gonna have to rebuild the defense that's gonna lose tj brunson javon kinlaw plus at least one veteran in the secondary I don't know what that looks like. I think that it again would look like an uphill battle, and it would be a case where if South Carolina has another subpar season, you probably have to part ways with him. I don't know if getting back on solid ground changes things, but at the very least it knocks a sizable amount of money off that buyout, which is, you know, a real-life factor. 
you start throwing out what next year looks like in terms of who leaves, and it always feels like a team loses a lot, but that sure sounds like a lot. And the schedule doesn't get any easier if you consider that they'll trade a home Alabama game for a road LSU game. So it's going to be tough. On the plus side, for them, they won't have a North Carolina game. They'll have at least three theoretical free wins, and one of them will not be App State, which in retrospect, scheduling that seems like an ill-fated decision. Yeah, I think next year's schedule is a little front-loaded in terms of being favorable to get off to a good start. This is the last question for today. It's hard to get through the season like this without any sort of change, and Muschamp was asked directly about the offensive staff. Here's what he said. Do you feel like you need to make any offensive coaching changes? Right now, we just need to be more productive, and, and uh, no, not at this time. We, we've we're inconsistent in personnel and what we've got to be able to do. It's, it's a little bit unfair out there right now, you know, so we're, we're struggling in a lot of ways as far as those things are concerned, but we need to be more productive. Ben, where are things not improving, and do you see a scenario where Will Muschamp, the Gamecocks 2020, have their third offensive coordinator in, in his five seasons? Well, where they're not improving, I think – it's hard to go directly back to the offensive line because I think Eric Wolford has done a decent job overall, but this offensive line, after showing promise at points and showing a fair amount of improvement last season, has kind of backslid. And maybe that gets better when you have a bunch of returning starters. I can't say. But that group struggled. The wide receivers really failed to develop. They lost Debo last year. They're going to lose Brian Edwards this year. And there's a lot of questions in terms of the pass catchers. I think Helinski's done decent. I think he's done not bad. He hasn't changed the world by any stretch, but he's done okay. And I think the running backs this year definitely got better overall. And I think the tight ends, considering the amount of attrition they had, I think they were perfectly okay. Nothing unbelievably special, but they were fine. In terms of potential changing in coaches, my assumption uh, after the game was that the question was sort of referring to an in-season change, which Muschamp has seemed and definitely sounded like he was less than interested in. If we get to the off-season, I think at this rate you almost—I don't know that you have to make a change, but I think it's extremely— Maybe not extremely likely, because I don't necessarily know that for a fact, but based on everything that's happened, you've had McClendon, who had one pretty good year with Debo Samuel and has not had a great year this year by any stretch. They've had, you know, they, they started out talking about RPOs and then they pushed toward being more of a run first team. It's sort of been a thing. And also he's in charge of the wide receiver position. And as we said earlier, the wide receiver position has been kind of a mess this season. And it's not going to get any better when you lose Brian Edwards, who is one of the better receivers that's come around in a program that's had some pretty good wide receivers in its time. So I would be at best unsurprised to see some kind of change there just because you can't keep going with the same thing over and over. I mean, sometimes you can, but that's a pretty tough one with the new OC. And then the next question after that's going to be, if you were to change out offensive coordinators, what kind of offensive coordinator could you get with the fact that they seem pretty happy with Dan Werner as a quarterback coach, and they seem to really like Thomas Brown as a running backs coach? And frankly, both of those guys have offensive coordinator experience, and it would be definitely tough to find another and a different offensive coordinator who also coaches wide receivers. So you might see some movement there just because that's functional. And... I don't think South Carolina could go with the promote from within push again, even though Werner had a pretty good tenure as an offensive coordinator and Brown had a fine tenure as an offensive coordinator for Mark Richt. But, you know, yeah, I don't think he was calling plays if memory served. So I, I, I think it's a case of 
there just hasn't been that kind of progress. Would it look bad for Muschamp to have to go with a third offensive coordinator in his South Carolina tenure after everything that happened at Florida? Yeah, it would not look good, but this year hasn't looked good either, and frankly, you'd have to make some kind of change or else he, before too long, could become the change himself. I'm here with basketball beat writer Andrew Ramsbacker. Andrew, the Gamecocks are 2-0 and so far this season, coming off a 66-32 to win Sunday over Wyoming. Give me some of your early impressions of the Gamecocks. I think Frank Martin had a lot of optimism around this team in the offseason. We've talked about that, and a lot of it stemmed from, obviously, the makeup of this roster. I think what we've seen for the, for the first two games is how – this roster is playing out in real time. And I say that from a defensive standpoint. What gets Frank Martin most excited about with his teams? It's not necessarily offense. It's usually what he does with the defense. Uh, We think about that 2017 Final Four team. It was Darius Thornwell and Dwayne Notice and guys that could really defend on the perimeter. I legit think he thinks that this team has that kind of potential. Uh, I'm not saying they're going to the Final Four, but has that, the personnel and the roster and the lineup options to rival the defensive presence of that team because they are so long where it matters. Do they have a proven rim protector yet? I think that's being developed. You know, obviously you had a Chris Silva on that other team who was still young, but, you know, a little more experience in a couple of these guys. I think Wildens Levesque and Jalen McCreary, you know, can maybe develop into those guys. But in order to get to the rim, you got to beat a defender first. And so far, these guys have done a pretty good job of kind of staying in front of their man. I I think Frank wasn't real, real impressed with how they defended in the opener against North Alabama. They come back and they play Wyoming on a Sunday, and it was suffocating. I mean, they just smothered them. The 32 points that the Cowboys scored were the least amount a South Carolina team has allowed in the shot clock era, dating back to 85-86. So, they got potential. Uh, I think I think the offense is coming along. Frank Martin said after the Wyoming game that it's quote unquote little they're a little vanilla right now uh, with some of their play calls and stuff like that. They're still kind of feeling their way out, but you know the potential of an AJ Lawson when he gets going. You know how Justin Minaya can shoot. We've seen Jermaine Kuznard in spurts, whether it's over the summer at the pro am or during a couple of games so far. We know there's there's a lot of talent there offensively. Jared Bull is another guy that can shoot, uh, and that'll come as the season progresses and, and when you get Keyshawn Bryant back in the mix, but. Right now, the thing that stands out, yes, yeah, the defense. I mean, both opponents have been held under 25% shooting in two games. Not a lot to, to nitpick and complain about there if you're, if you're Frank Martin. Wyoming coach Alan Edwards mentioned that this team is more complete than what he saw a year ago. And, of course, one of the Gamecocks' most infamous losses from a year ago was that loss at Wyoming. Uh, what, what was he referring to? Is that, is that a, the Manaya effect or, or, is, or is it just overall? I think it's first the Minaya effect a little bit in the sense that Justin Minaya did not play in that game against Wyoming last year. That was one of the first couple of games after he had the knee injury and didn't make the trip to Laramie. And yeah, South Carolina was the worst loss of last year. Uh, that Wyoming team won eight games. They were 8-24. and 24. We're talking about the net rankings and stuff like that. There are four quads. A quad one win is the best. Quad four loss is the worst. That was a quad four loss. Just a damning kind of loss that... They got beat in December, and they got beat again in March by it because I think it was a big reason why they didn't get in the postseason. Talk about the NIT, despite finishing fourth in the SEC. So it was a huge loss, and it didn't include Justin Minaya. Now, Justin Minaya is back on this team. He guarded Wyoming's best player today, 
Hunter Maldonado, guy who scored 32 points, Wyoming's opener. Justin and I limited him to 10. So I think that's number one, is that Allen Edwards didn't see Justin and I last year. That makes this team more complete. But number two, there's just new faces. Jermaine Kuznar, Jared Bolden, that helps out that guard depth a little bit. And then the guys that came back are better. A.J. Lawson, obviously, everyone knows about him. Um, you saw what he could do today. Had a better performance in game two than he did in game one. Had eight points right off the top and really kind of led that early charge that put Wyoming away. And, you know, guys are better. They're deeper. And, you know, Frank Martin just has a lot of options. And Allen Edwards is a guy that, that knows what Frank's about. He played for him when Frank was a, uh, a JV coach at Miami Senior High School back in the 90s. So he dates way back with him. He knows what Frank likes to see with the identity of a team. And this roster fits it right now. And through two games, obviously it's a long season, uh, South Carolina's kind of establishing itself. It's just a, a long, deep team that can really defend. You and I had talked about how important it is for South Carolina to go 5-0 and in this first stretch of non-conference games. What's next on the schedule before they head to Cancun? Yeah, all games that are winnable and should be winnable by large margins. Obviously, they won the first game uh, by 22. They won the second game by over 30. You should expect those kind of results against Cleveland State, against Boston University, and against Gardner-Webb. Now, Gardner-Webb's a team that did make the NCAA tournament last year. If you were in Columbia, uh, you might have saw them play at Colonial Life Arena as a 16 seed that gave Virginia, the eventual national champion, some problems in the first half of that game. But those three games right there uh, are games that South Carolina uh, needs to kind of dominate like they've done against North Alabama and, uh, and Wyoming so far because after that, it gets real a little bit. You're going to really see what this team is made of when it goes to Cancun and it plays Wichita State. If it beats Wichita State, it then we'll play potentially West Virginia, obviously coached by Bob Huggins, another Frank Martin guy from early in his coaching career, or Northern Iowa, a team that, that is always seems to be in the mix for an NCAA tournament berth as a mid-major team. So those games right there are really going to tell us more about this team. These next three, I think, are still kind of in that playing out period. I think South Carolina will dominate. And then uh, you see kind of how, how good they are when they take that trip to Cancun over Thanksgiving uh, with a couple of, uh, uh, of tests there south of the border. That's all we have for this week's edition. Join us again midweek as we turn attention to Texas A&M and catch you up on all the action that Greg saw in Maryland. Thanks for listening and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.